Thank you for coming. Again, we are here uh, studying the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We're in chapter 2, and glad you're here with us. Let's begin with prayer. Father, once again, we are grateful for the freedoms that we have in this country to study your word, to read it, to have it freely in our possession. Lord, we bless you for that, and we ask by your mercies that you might continue to give us that freedom, Lord, that we might be lights in this world for your greatness and for the salvation that you have made through our Savior, your Son, Yeshua. Father, we bless you and thank you for your Ruach HaKodesh. Holy Spirit, we seek your presence. We long to know your leading in every aspect of our lives. We thank you for your inspiring this scripture that we're reading and studying. And we know, therefore, that it has eternal truth and application for us. So, Lord, we ask that you would open this word to us tonight and that each one who attends and those that may even listen afterwards would be blessed by your word and it might both encourage us and strengthen us as well as show us where we need to make changes or where there are things in our lives that need uh, to be shored up that we've let go. Lord, we thank you that you do not abandon us, but you walk with us regularly, day by day, and you continue to draw us unto yourself in your love. We thank you for that, and we bless you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to read chapter 2. This is where we are in Philippians. We finished off chapter 1 last week, and we're just in the beginning verses of chapter 2 this week. I'm reading from the ESV. So if there is any encouragement in Messiah, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Messiah Yeshua, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Yeshua every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Messiah, I may be proud that I did not run in vain, nor labor in vain. 
even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Yeshua Messiah. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Messiah, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, you can clearly see the uh, cordial kind of relationship that Paul has with this community in Philippi and uh, how he is willing to just unload his own burdens and his own situation as well as to lead them to the truth and encourage them in the things that they need to do. So, we didn't finish uh, verse 2 last week, so I thought I would start just uh, a bit back uh, on the page 71 where we ended last week in the notes. So, Paul begins by emphasizing the importance of encouragement in Messiah. And the word encouragement, paraklesis, is one of those terms that is somewhat difficult to know precisely what its intended meaning is in any given context. This is because the word can carry a number of different nuances. It can express encouragement, exhortation, to appeal, to request, or to comfort, or to give consolation. It seems best, I think, in this context to understand the word encouragement to mean comfort, or that which dispels fear and dismay. This is because the emphasis is upon encouragement in Messiah. We can note Second Corinthians 1.5, For just as the sufferings of Messiah are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Messiah. This means to be strengthened, encouraged, and comforted even in times of trial and suffering, knowing that what the Lord has promised he will always do. So, obviously, Paul is in this situation, as we have said in the past sessions. He's in prison. He's been accused of uh, crimes against Rome. And this would, if he is convicted of these um, and found guilty... Uh, would cost his life. So he is kind of betwixt and between as to whether he'll be uh, allowed to go out of the prison or whether uh, capital punishment is in his near future. And yet here he is saying that he is comforted just by what Apophrotitus and uh, others have made known to him of the situation there in Philippi. So there is no need to be overcome with fear regarding the future. 
That's the lesson we learn. He will enable all who are His to persevere and give them the strength to do so as they rely upon Him. Surely, He has promised never to leave or to forsake those who are His. And we read this, of course, in Hebrews. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And again in Matthew 18:20, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. He goes on to say, If there is any consolation of love, since Paul begins with encouragement in Messiah, it seems best to understand the phrase consolation of love to be referring to God's love for all who are His as demonstrated by the love of Yeshua in giving Himself for all those whom the Father has given to Him, as we read in John 6.37. Surely, there is no greater expression of God's love than in the giving of His own Son, Yeshua, to save sinners and to bring them into the family of God for eternity. As we read in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. We who belong to Him because of His love in giving His life for us ought likewise to love each other, for in doing so we demonstrate our love for Him. As we read in 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now that's the the basic background for this whole next section uh, that we're covering tonight, is to keep in mind what God has done for us. Do we really fathom the greatness of what God has done for us in His Son, Yeshua, and by giving us the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to have this ongoing relationship with Him, knowing that we're not condemned, but we're welcomed into His presence. Why? Because Yeshua has paid the penalty for our sin. Well, he goes on to say, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit. The word fellowship, koinonia, is often understood to mean fellowship as the NASB translates it here, meaning to be together, talk together, etc. But the primary aspect of the word is that of sharing in or participating in something, usually with other people, with someone else. Thus, the fellowship that Paul is describing here undoubtedly involves sharing together the essential aspects of life in Yeshua. It incorporates the work of the Spirit, not only gifting every member of the community to serve the Lord and each other, but also to recognize the essential aspects of encouraging each other, coming to the aid of each other, and striving for unity with each other. And so here, once again, is the whole point of community and why it is so necessary for us to do our level best to be with others, other believers on a regular basis. Because it is in this life-to-life entity that the Word of God is made more effective and more real to us as we serve one another. Now he goes on to say, If any affection and compassion... Remember that when he's using these if words, it's, it's understood to mean since there is. But he's using it to say since there is, then how are we going to act? The common expression to denote affection in the Greek of Paul's day was to reference the splachnon, that is, the inward parts of a body, including especially the viscera, inward parts, the entrails. So, as it may seem kind of strange to us, very strange to us, when he says that 
um, I have compassion for you in, in several of his epistles. What if we were to read it woodenly, it says, I have intestines for you. <laughs> well, why? Why did the Greek use this uh, splunk non to re- refer to compassion or affection? Um, it is often in the region of one's midriff that emotions of fear, joy, anticipation, etc. are felt, right? If all of a sudden you're, you're uh, confronted with something that's fearful, sometimes our stomachs kind of seize up a little bit. And that's why the King James Version woodenly translated our text as bowels and mercy. That's being very uh, wooden because obviously in our culture, bowels don't have anything to do with mercy or with our feelings, our emotions. But in ancient Greece, that was exactly what how they would say it. My inwards crave for you or my inwards care about you. In Colossians 3.12, Paul uses this similar expression, heart of compassion, which utilizes the same terms as in our Philippian text, affection and compassion. And it is that same word, splunkna, and then we have oiktirmu. That the NESB and ESV translate this Colossians text with the English word heart uh, appears to be an accommodation to the modern usage of heart as the seat of human emotions even though in ancient Greece the midriff, not the heart, was considered the place from which emotions came. The NIV, on the other hand, simply translates it compassion and kindness. Some have suggested that the two terms, affection and compassion, and I've given them to you there in the Greek again, function as a hindeidus. Now, hindeidus is a Greek word which means one through two, literally. Hen, dia, deus. So, hindeidus means... Uh, two words joined together to describe a single idea. So is that what he means by affection and compassion? They sound to be kind of the same, or they have the same idea. However, it seems more likely to me that Paul uses these two words to give a fuller understanding of his intended meaning. Affection is that which begins in one's thoughts and intentions, while compassion comprises the actions which result from one's desire to show affection. So, one is the, uh, the inward uh, thought and need for showing compassion or something, and the other is the actual extending compassion to the person in need. Referring to our text, Philippians 2.1, one uh, scholar, Koister, gives this explanation of the two terms, the two terms affection and compassion used together. In this sense... Splagna, affection, is to be differentiated somewhat from the parallel oiktirmoi. Splagna, or the idea of affection and then compassion, is thus a pregnant phrase, that is, a more full phrase in which love from the heart and personal sympathy comprehensively describe the essential elements in Christian dealings. So, what what I understand Paul to do here is that he's simply telling us it has to start first with our inner thoughts. We have to have our right thinking in order to properly show compassion to someone. Sometimes we can show compassion where, uh, in, in a form of compassion that really needs to be something different. 
Or sometimes we may think that it's time to, to confront somebody and do that compassionately, but maybe they're in a situation where they're not ready to be confronted. You understand what I'm saying? There has to be wisdom as well as then the, uh, the willingness to extend oneself in terms of love and compassion to, to others. Here in our Philippian passage, Paul is once again affirming that within the body of Messiah, affection and compassion for each other ought surely to be an overarching characteristic. For the primary goal of all who comprise the true assembly of believers is that each one would become more and more conformed to the very person of Yeshua. Isn't that the goal? The goal that we have is ultimately that Yeshua would receive the glory in our personal lives, in our relationships, in our communities, that ultimately Yeshua would be the one to receive the praise and the honor and the glory. In other words, we show affection and compassion to each other, not simply as a way of showing that I'm a good person, no, 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 but because we want to honor the Lord who has loved us and shown us compassion. And he demonstrated the ultimate measure of affection and compassion by giving his life for those he would save. John tells us in his first epistle, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And again in 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, sometimes I grant that there's tough love, Sometimes we have to come along uh, to each other and and put our arm around a a brother or a sister and say, uh, I need to talk with you about something. And sometimes that's the most difficult kind of love, to lovingly confront each other, to help each other get back on the track of righteousness when we have wandered away from it. Of course, the primary issue that impedes the local gathered body of Messiah to be known as having such affection and compassion toward each other is the remaining corruptions of the sinful flesh. For the sin nature seeks to put self as having priority and thus diminishing the needs and welfare of others as secondary. It is clear that maintaining unity within the local assembly of believers is only possible as each one grows in their life of faith and thereby are strengthened to put to death the desires of the flesh and to demonstrate in their actions toward each other the love of Messiah by which they have been made new. Now, I recognize that the so-called Messianic movement is not alone in this. There are many uh, movements that have begun in the uh, out of the blossom of the Christian church, which... Uh, have faltered and have gone uh, directions they shouldn't have gone and so forth. But it seems that, like so many other, uh, shall we say, young movements, because the Messianic movement, even the one that current Messianic movement, probably began in the 50s or the 60s. So we're relatively (laughs) quite young. But it seems that we have had a difficulty maintaining our communities together. And this is what uh, Paul is emphasizing here, is that we, ha- if we have truly experienced the love of Messiah, then we ought to learn from that how to love one another, how to care for each other, 
and not to be self-oriented. You know, if, well, I don't like the way they do this, or I don't like the way he said this, or, you know, we don't have this, we need this, we don't have this, we don't have that, I'm leaving, I'm going somewhere else. Well, that is all related to one's own needs. But the scriptures here are teaching us that we're to hold the needs of others as more important than our own. How do we commit ourselves to that? How do we desire that? the way God intends us to desire it. That's what Paul is talking about here. So he goes on to say, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Paul began his letter to the Philippian community by emphasizing the loving relationship they had together. He thanks God as he remembers their time together, offering prayers with joy for them, always giving thanks for their desire to aid him by supplying his needs through the agency of Epaphroditus. One author has put it this way, These descriptions of the excess, the open, inner road between Paul and the Philippians provided a strong incentive to build unity in the community. The memory of past intimacy should heal present disunity. Paul pleads with them, If we were such close friends concerned to help each other in the past, let us tear down the walls that divide us and be reunited in love. That's a very difficult thing to do, but it's an important thing to do. It is important for us to maintain the unity of the faith in the bonds of shalom. We also see in this phrase an excellent example of how a leader can encourage those he leads to strive for that which pleases the Lord. He does not begin by reprimanding or scolding them for what might have been their failures but rather reminds them of that which is most important, namely, the unity and love among community members, which thereby gives a watching world the truth about being in Messiah. We live in an increasingly skeptical world, right? They're skeptical about uh, everything. Uh, Atheism is on the rise big time. Uh, The whole idea of the, uh, the, you know, the Christian church and the failings of the Christian church and all of the other religions and so forth have left many kind of nonplussed when it comes to the whole idea of seeking out a religious connection with a creator. How do they, what do they see when they see us? If they see us helping one another and staying together and in spite of our differences learning how to find unity together, in the things that we do agree about. If they see that, they might say, well, maybe there's something there. So Paul appeals to those in Philippi not to allow the difficulties that they are experiencing, the, the, uh, the very fact that Paul himself is now in prison and others undoubtedly were thinking, well, the same thing is going to happen to us if we continue to be stalwart for the Lord. Well, His whole point is, no, God is in control. Trust Him and do what He says and do it for His glory. So, He appeals to them by reminding them how joyful their relationships together have been and how this likewise makes heightened His own joy and gratefulness even while being in prison. Paul now gives us three essentials that enable believers within a given community to strive for unity in order to honor the Lord who has saved them from destruction 
and granted them eternal life. The first is being of the same mind. And to be of the same mind means to have the same goals and the same path to that goal as one's primary desire. Do we even know what the goal is? Do we rehearse that enough in our daily living? What is the goal? To do all things to the glory of God. That in all aspects of our life, He would receive honor and glory that He deserves. But this requires knowing what God has revealed to us by means of His Word. For it is in the Scriptures that we are taught God's truth and how we are to live it out, thus becoming the very characteristic of our lives. Are we characterized by the Scriptures? That is, living our life according to what the Bible has laid down for us. For it is the living and active Word of God. And what does Paul mean by the same mind? Does that mean everybody has to just agree about everything? <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's not the... We can have our differences. And some of the differences are inconsequential. You know, one person can like this color better than that color or whatever. That, that's not what he's talking about. What is the same mind? It is the overarching desire to please the Lord in all things, and thus to put away the things of the flesh and the world, constantly striving to have the mind of Messiah and to submit to his will. Paul will emphasize what is the mind of Messiah in the following context, verses 5-8. through eight. And by the way, as you know, as we've read in this second chapter, we come to this wonderful hymn, the hymn of Messiah. Let this mind be in you who being in the form of God, and so forth and so on. It's a wonderful hymn, full, packed full of very important theological truth as it centers upon the work of Yeshua, his person, who he is, what he has done, and who we are in him. But in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.16 we read, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Messiah. How do we have the mind of Messiah? We have the mind of Messiah by taking into our life, into our thought processes, as something that is essential and ongoing, the very truth about who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And all of this begins at the very beginning of the scriptures until we come to the actual a historical event of his birth, and so forth and so on. Once again, the Word of God is the cornerstone of our faith. What we often fail to consider is that friendships are fragile, and even close friends can be divided when pride, selfishness, and preoccupation with personal interests take a top priority. To have the mind of Messiah, then, means to be willing to do all in one's power to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of shalom, peace, according to Paul in Ephesians 4.3. Ultimately, this means, first, that we must know what pleases God and how we are to conform our lives to His will. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but I'm emphasizing it again. This requires spiritual growth, which means gaining victory over the weaknesses of the flesh, and putting into practice those things that honor him. So, to have the mind of the Messiah is the first important step. Secondly, he says, maintaining the same love. 
The ultimate picture and expression of love is that of Yeshua giving himself for those he would save, as we will see in the following context of this chapter. That's going to be the main focus in the upcoming verses. When the New American Standard Bible has maintaining the same love, the translators have sought to capture the fact that the Greek word exontes, uh, which means from the uh, verb echo, to have or to possess, is a present participle. Now, what are participles? In the English, they're usually ing words. Walking, going, living, so forth. Well, the present participle emphasizes an ongoing action, that is, a love that keeps on loving. So when he says, having the same love, he means continually having. That's why the NESB translates it, maintaining the same love. That is, a love that keeps on loving. Paul's point is therefore obvious, and it is this. Genuine love, patterned after the love with which Yeshua has loved us, is to be that for which his people are to strive. It is to be the life attribute by which those who confess him to be their Savior are known. Can we therefore bear with one another? Can we help each other? Can we forgive each other? And can we maintain the unity of the Spirit together, helping each other to grow. But what does Paul mean by emphasizing the same love? He says, maintaining the same love. This undoubtedly is tied back to the phrase in verse 1, if there is any consolation of love, which, as noted above, is best understood to refer to God's love in sending Yeshua to be the Savior of his people. What then is the primary characteristic of God's love? It is a love given for the good of others, and a love which is ongoing, which does not give up, and thus love that overcomes difficulties and succeeds. It's that kind of love, the same kind of love that God has for us. Granted, His love is infinite and eternal. We can't match that, but we can still seek to have our love with the same qualities as his love. How did he love us? That's how we're to love each other. Not giving up. Not quitting. It is this kind of self-giving love, divinely portrayed in the coming of Yeshua, which is to be the goal of all who are in Messiah. Now that presents us a very challenging reality, isn't it? We have to learn to love others that in our own flesh are not very lovable. (laughs) We have to learn to forgive. We have to learn to overlook inconsequential things that may bug us nonetheless. We have to learn to love the way God loved us. And thirdly then, he says, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. While the New American Standard Bible considers this to be two phrases, it seems best on the basis of the Greek itself to understand this to be a single phrase describing the unity for which a believing community should strive. The opening phrase of the NESB, united in spirit, actually translates what is a single word in the Greek. It is sumspukoi, which is found only here in the Apostolic Scriptures and is not used anywhere in the Septuagint. So, we don't have a lot to go on if we try to find where else this word is used in uh, in the biblical text. Sum spukai 
in in this form. It's a plural. It is a compound word made up of the preposition soon, which is a preposition, right? With, meaning to associate with, emsuke, soul, or being, or life. It's the very life, the soul of the body. This harkens back to chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul writes, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, where mind in this verse is actually soul in the Greek. He then adds intent on one purpose, a phrase which utilizes the Greek verb to think again, and therefore portrays the sense of being of one mind in the sense of agreeing together with the truth. Now, that doesn't mean we aren't going to have discussions on what does this mean, what does that mean, how does this apply, how does that apply, but we strive to agree, and to agree ultimately in those things which are essential. And even in non-essentials, you know, it's okay if it's a non-essential, I can give up something that I would have it this way, but if everyone else wants it that way, I can conform if it's a non-essential. Well, so he then adds this phrase, intent on one purpose, a phrase which utilizes the Greek verb to think. That is, thinking together in one way, and therefore portrays the sense of being of one mind on the sense of agreeing together with the truth. Here Paul combines the two aspects of one's feelings and one's knowledge. For surely within a community of people who have different backgrounds, different personality traits, different stations in life, so forth, there's going to be differences, right? But unity comes when we submit our wills and our desires to the Lord and seek to honor Him by putting into practice the very wisdom of the Scriptures as we are led and enabled to honor our Lord and Savior through yielding ourselves to the leading of the Ruach and submitting to the truth of the Scriptures. You know, I can hear people saying, if they were uh, hearing this, listening to this, I can, I can hear people saying, you know, it's so much easier. Let's just all do it online. We don't have to be together. I can have it my way in my house. You can have it your way in your house. We can, we can get together and just, you know, listen to a teaching and then that, that's good enough. Well, in some cases, that's the best thing we can do as we're doing right now. But I hope that everyone who listens to this and all of you who are joining online right now, I hope you have the ability to be life to life with other believers on a regular basis. Exactly how that's happening in your own situations. It may be just a very small group. It may be, I don't know. But there is something absolutely necessary for us to have life-to-life relationships, face-to-face, helping each other, sensing the needs of each other, learning to love one another even when it's difficult. That is part of our sanctification. And that's what Paul is driving at here. And so we come to verse 3. Now this gets even more personal. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Can you believe that Paul wrote that? But with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do you see how humility of mind, Paul continues to remind us that what our thought process is will inevitably be lived out in our doing. Humility of mind. Do I really consider 
that others are more important than I am in many aspects of life. So here Paul pinpoints the primary means by which unity is achieved and maintained within the local assembly of believers. It is the desire, willingness, and resolve to put to death the desires of the sinful flesh and then to serve others from a spirit of true humility as servants of the Lord himself. Have you ever pictured the idea of Yeshua standing right there with you and waiting to see what happens when someone is in need and what you do? You turn and look at him and he looks at you like, are you going to follow what I've told you? Is he that close to us? Yes, he is. And the Spirit of God prompts us to obey. He says, do nothing from selfishness. He begins by emphasizing that which is the desire of the sinful flesh and what must constantly be overcome and conquered. First is selfishness, which is erethea in the Greek. The same word Paul used earlier uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 17 to describe those who proclaim Messiah out of selfish ambition. That is, in an attempt to displace Paul's position of authority while he was imprisoned. It seems very likely that he uses the same word here in our text to describe those who seek positions of authority or public notoriety within the local assembly of believers, either by defaming the current leadership through gossip and Lashon Hara, that is, evil speech, or by usurping their own voice and actions in hopes of gaining a following by which their self-proclaimed expertise would be recognized. In essence, such selfish ambition is the precise opposite of humble service with the goal of giving honor and glory to Yeshua. He says, do away with all of that. Do nothing from selfishness. And he goes on to say, or empty conceit. The Greek word translated here by the New American Standard Bible as empty conceit is kenodotia, a compound noun made up of kenos, which means to be without something material or empty, and doxa, which means fame, renown, honor, and it's the normal word for glory. Thus, in our verse, it is used by Paul to describe someone who proclaims himself, by whatever means, as being great and worthy of honor, when, in fact, their claims and actions are empty, proven by the fact that they seek to honor themselves rather than humbly serving others and allowing the hand of God to open the way for them to serve Him and His people as He desires. And, you know, we've, we have good uh, illustration of this even in, in our contemporary world of people who have given their lives to serve others and have done so willingly and with joy in serving the Lord. Paul uses this same word in his epistle to the Galatians. Let us not become boastful. There it is, our same word, challenging one another, envying one another. The point Paul is making in our text is clear. Self-centeredness is the opposite of true, humble service, and such attempts to put oneself forward by boasting of one's abilities or achievements is contrary to God's purposes and His divine will. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to do uh, all that we can do to ready ourselves 
We can be educated. We should be educated. We should know the scriptures. We should spend our time uh, making our minds active and sharp with regard to understanding and knowing and being able to use the scriptures. There's nothing wrong with gaining those abilities. What Paul is saying here is you don't wave those in front of everybody every time you have the opportunity. You show them who you are by your actions and by your service and by your willingness to humble yourself to help others and not constantly need to be in the limelight. He says, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. In the words humility of mind, which is actually one word in the Greek, I've given it to you there, Paul once again emphasizes that proper actions flow from correct thinking. For it is only when a person is convinced of the truth in his or her own mind that proper actions will be forthcoming. To accept for oneself the truth, for instance, of what Paul proclaims in Romans 7.18 is necessary to foster true humility in service of God and his people. Paul writes in Romans 7.18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. On his own, by his own human strength, he would not have the ability to do what God wanted him to do. God is the one who enables us to accomplish what he has called us to do. So what Paul means by this statement is that apart uh, from God's saving work in the life of the believer, there would be no ability to do that which would be proclaimed by God himself as good. For without faith in Yeshua, it is impossible to please the Almighty. The writer to the Hebrews makes this clear. And without faith, it is impossible to please him For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So you say, well, look at all the wonderful things that people are doing that are, you know, atheists. They're they're giving to the poor, so forth. Okay, I'm not putting those down as not good deeds, but they're not good deeds in God's uh, mind. Nothing can be accepted by him unless it is through the work of His Son, Yeshua, and His Spirit. Therefore, giving Him the glory and giving Him the honor for all things that are good. And what is it that genuine faith, the very gift of God Himself, makes clear to the child of God? This is it, that without Him we could do nothing that would please Him, that is genuinely good in His sight. You see, Mankind still thinks that he can pull himself up by the bootstraps. If I do enough good deeds, if I give enough money to the poor, if I you know, do this, that, and the other, then certainly God would say, oh, you're good enough, come on in. No. There is in my flesh not one good thing, Paul says. Without God, there's no hope. This means that saving faith also brings humility to the child of God, for we know that it is not of our own doing that we have been enabled to be righteous before Him and to honor Him with our lives. But it is entirely the gift of His grace, through the saving work of His Son Yeshua, that we are His and thus endowed with the ability to honor Him in all aspects of our life, as the Spirit enables and strengthens us to do so. So he says, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Boy, here is the rub, isn't it? Here's where where the 
where the rubber really meets the road. I'm supposed to regard that person as more important than myself? Yes. Why? Because anything I have that's good has been a gift of God's grace, not something that I've earned. Now, granted, we can grow in the grace and in the knowledge of God. We can grow to be more and more like Him, and it is a cooperative work as we obey as we put to death the deeds of the flesh, granted, but still, everything that we have that is good is given to us by God. It's important to note that the English word regard is, in the Greek, a present participle, hegumenoi, which indicates that this action of regarding is to be an ongoing, always present reality in the life of the believer. It isn't just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing reality. That's what the participle would indicate in this text. Considering others as more important than ourselves is to be an evident characteristic of all who have been redeemed by God's matchless love and grace. Thus, through God's gift of salvation, we are given the ability and by the Spirit in our lives are enabled to consider others as more important than ourselves. By this Paul means that we consider the needs of others as having a higher importance than our own needs, knowing full well that God will meet all of our needs as He has promised. This frees us to serve others as a primary way of giving glory to our Lord, the One who has redeemed us unto Himself. What does Micah 6.8 say? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And so Paul goes on in verse 4 and writes, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The Greek text itself might be more woodenly translated, Do not look out only for yourself, but also for other persons. The English translations feel the need to supply words like interests or things, but when we speak of a person's interests, we have often in mind hobbies, etc., etc., and not essential needs. The Greek wording would emphasize primarily the needs of others, which is much broader than simply interests, as we understand it oftentimes in our English language. The import of this verse is the obvious conclusion of the exhortation given in the previous verses, and it is straightforward. As believers in Yeshua, we are not only to look after our own needs and give our life energies to those things that pertain only to ourselves, but we are to also seek to help others with their needs and also encourage them in their service to the Lord as well. Paul speaks to this in Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Messiah. Isn't that interesting? Is the law of Messiah one and the same as the law given to Moshe at, uh, at uh, Sinai? Oh, yes. When when Moshe was on the mountain, he saw God, and underneath his feet was a sea like glass. Who did he see? He saw the Messiah in a pre-incarnate uh, representation. So, bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the Torah of Messiah. As Messianics, we have put a large emphasis, and rightly so, upon the Torah. Well, one aspect of the Torah is to bear one another's burdens. Well, Yeshua himself says it. What is the law of Messiah? 
well, the law of Moses and the law of Messiah, that we fulfill when we bear each other's burdens. A new commandment I give to you, Yeshua said, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's a commandment of our Lord and Savior. Are we intent on obeying the Torah? Then we should be equally intent upon loving one another and caring for one another, which means forgiving each other, helping each other, and maintaining our allegiance to one another. One commentator summarizes our verse in this way. If one regards the brother very highly, he will wish to look to his interests in order to help him in every possible way. The apostle surely implies that a believer should look to his own interests, but he should obey the command, you must love your neighbor as yourself, a commandment which receives added stress when the neighbor is a brother in Messiah, according to John 13 and Galatians 6. The more one realizes how fervently Messiah loved the brother, and went all out to save him, the more he will wish to advance that brother's interests. Thus, too, true unity will be promoted, and before the world the glorious fellowship will begin to stand out in all its beauty as a mighty testimony. And I think that is the bottom line by way of the ultimate purpose and ultimate fruit of loving each other within a community setting, to care for each other. And we have experienced that um, significantly in the last three weeks, as many of you have come, uh, uh, helped us with food or and telling us that you're praying for us and so forth and so on, for, particularly for Paulette and, and the healing of her knee. Yes, and uh, we are grateful for that. And it shows a, a very real sense of unity. And this is what Paul is telling us. And then we can be, because of that, a genuine light to the world. Okay. Thank you again for coming and sharing this time with us. I hope that the uh, things that we've looked at here in the beginning verses of Philippians chapter 2 have been helpful. And I look forward to being with you all again next week, Lord willing, as we continue our study in this epistle of Philippians.